If I could uh, summarize a bit the last four weeks, because we began with Dr. Kirk's The Roots of American Order appearing in 1974, which, as I said, was two years before the bicentennial. And his thesis at that time was that America's true founding is pre-modern, and so he identified it then in relationship to four cities, not modern. The latter, he argues, is what comes about as a result of the Enlightenment, various kinds of ideologies, and so on. And so that was the business of our first evening together with the additional argument that order is very fragile and because of ideology can very quickly become disordered. So in the second session then, I narrowed things down a little bit more by arguing that Kirkian conservatism is vested in covenant theory, providential view of history, and a patrimony. And so I shifted you into a discussion then on natural law, natural liberty, I called it the spirit of the law, but also in particular, I mentioned and brought into being legal positivism, utilitarianism, and pragmatism. And so part of the discussion was then to get you into the differences between an originalist reading of the Constitution and the Constitution as a living document, which means interpretations will change depending upon the circumstances. And that's the session that I ended then by calling attention to the year of our Lord, 1943, and the appearance at that time of five Christian humanists, including then Jacques Maritain. So here's where we are tonight now. T.S. Eliot, the moral imagination or the diabolical imagination. T.S. Eliot and the idea of a Christian society during the twilight years. So last week then, I tried to narrow the focus a little bit more to American religious history, but I was especially interested in Catholicism in America, mainly because Dr. Kirk was a devout Catholic, but I was also interested in one person in whom I have some fondness, and that would have been Orestes Brownson, and his attempt then to create a space for Catholicism in that phrase, we the people. So I mentioned also at that time the Brownson revival, which came up in the 1950s, up into the 1960s, and so on, which also came along identical to the same time that Kirkian conservatism was taking deep ferment, especially among conservative Catholic journalists. So when that ferment then began to take place, the reason was because of Dr. Kirk's book called The Conservative Mind in America, which came out in 1953 well-received in Great Britain, less so here, especially in universities. Go figure. So the book then was the result of Dr. Kirk's time in Scotland at Venerable St. Andrews University where he was taking his doctoral degree. And his book, The Conservative Mind in America, was actually the product then of his doctoral dissertation. And the original title of it was The Conservative Mind in America from Burke to Santayana. Subsequent revisions took it then from Burke to T.S. Eliot. So that book then was republished with that different title. And I'd like to make this point then also, because what Dr. Kirk means by conservatism is best understood by transcendent principles rooted in natural law, God-given prescriptive natural rights to which society then should adhere prudently if order is to be preserved. So Kirkian conservatism then values traditional social ties, fears excessive individualism, 
Point being that much of what we hear today bandied about these days as conservatism, I think has become a word emptied of meaning. If it has any meaning at all, sadly, the reasoning behind it has to be simply the application of political force as well as factions. So it's a far, far removed from what Dr. Kirk originally intended. Now having said that, then, we're going to turn our attention now to another Christian humanist, Mr. T.S. Eliot. And this is a person with whom Dr. Kirk had a very, very long, long friendship. One point also to be made is that when you come to T.S. Eliot in the 20th century, he is first of all astride the modern age. First, in a way that the age demanded, and second, in a way in which the age would later on reject. And so his very difficult friend, Ezra Pound, would oftentimes chide Eliot, oh, possum, all that cod about a dead god. 1971 then, Dr. Kirk published, this is my ratty old copy here, Eliot and His Age, The Moral Imagination in the 20th Century. It's a book we might call a critical biography. Eliot had died in 1965, and in the following then years, no biography or collection of letters were published. This is mostly at the behest of his wife. Dr. Kirk's book was based upon a very personal friendship with Eliot, which began in 1953, when the two of them met in an obscure little hotel in Edinburgh with unattractive wicker furniture in the parlor. Dr. Kirk always had an eye for detail. Anyway, Eliot was there and he was staying because there was a performance of a first drama of his called The Confidential Clerk, written in the 1930s. The two had never met. But Dr. Kirk was in Scotland because of a close association again with St. Andrews, and also because Eliot was the person who had persuaded the firm of Faber and Faber to publish Dr. Kirk's The Conservative Mind. Dr. Kirk was then associated with a journal called The Month, and he had been asked there to view the performance of this play and write a review of it. So you have to sort of imagine now this little unfashionable room in this little unfashionable hotel, and here are two very introverted persons meeting for the first time, like watching cats stare at each other. <laughs> Elliot greeted him, though, with a kind of kindly simplicity and also a directness, which Dr. Kirk admired. And then such continued over other meetings over a period of time. There's Miss Erna. Should I ask her a question? How was traffic? Don't be. Don't be. This is our friend and neighbor Erna. She goes back a ways in time. And uh, I will say a couple things in here today also about Germany, oh. with which you have an extraordinary familiarity. Anyway, so this then continued between the two of them, Dr. Kirk and Mr. Elliot, but strengthened over a period of time. So Dr. Kirk, the younger, Elliot, the elder statesman. Elliot's mind, Dr. Kirk said, was humane and disciplined and talk came over time to be easier. Dr. Kirk noted that Eliot was keenly intelligent but also very gracefully unassuming. So in other words, Eliot was a gentleman possessed of a moral imagination, 
The result of that first meeting became then a very warm friendship. Now there was an immediate pressing issue because as Dr. Kirk noted when he reflected back, Somerset Maugham, a writer among the moderns, argued that in the modern age it had become almost impossible in those days to venerate anybody. Now Dr. Kirk thought that that was true inasmuch as the modern age had produced very few men and or women one might be tempted to venerate. There were, in fact, many who expected to be venerated, but not Eliot, who smiled at the notion affably. Dr. Kirk thought one could read into his aged face and become conscious of his great compassion, which should not be conserved, confused with the consciousness of the sentimental humanitarian, but a consciousness of the community of souls. So he had within himself a kind of spiritual wariness seen as early as his undergraduate years at Harvard, which Dr. Kirk wrote was clinging to the notion of some gentle but infinitely suffering thing, which suggests again early in his life that he owned a moral courage. And he was astride his age, but knew that the present condition of the culture after World War I and the pair of decades then through the 1930s and then World War II, and by the way, these days now, these decades are referred to as the 30 years war. So in other words, you don't just stop with World War I. It continues and continues and picks up in World War II. Anyway, the generation that came of age then during that time is sometimes again called the lost generation. And he was there, and he was witness, and he suffered, and he labored then to restore the moral imagination for his own age with poems and essays and what we might call verse dramas. Now, Dr. Kirk, on the other hand, was an independent scholar and not associated with any particular college or university during his lifetime, except for a small amount of time in which he was at the faculty at Michigan State University, which he subsequently always referred to as Behemoth State and an educational wasteland. I hope I'm not offending anybody. <laughs> so to finance himself, and the family, and the Piety Hill Macosta property. He applied for grants, earned also from his books, speeches, articles, largesse. He was not a rich man by any measure, unless by reputation, his wife Annette, and four very, very different and extraordinarily precocious daughters. Sometime during the late 1980s, he was working on a new book funded by a good-sized grant from the Earhart Foundation in Ann Arbor. They would fund him, but he needed to have a college association. So I remember the Friday afternoon, the call came to my office and the convoys of Pat, our college president's right-hand person, asked if I would slip over to the president's office where I would learn about the issue. It was a short but worrisome walk as I tried to figure out what kind of misdemeanor I had committed. When I arrived at the president's office that day, good lady Pat looked at my drawn countenance and said to me that I wasn't in any trouble <laughs> that time. So what I learned was that Earhart was asking if Dr. Kirk could associate with my college to achieve and receive that Earhart grant. I suggested a small seminar class on his books, complimented by a visit from him now and again to campus, but later on in the semester, a little bit required but host the class at Piety Hill the final week during which the students then 
would deliver their seminar papers in the open space in his wonderful, wonderful library. So we went and we stayed Friday and Saturday, but then due to leave on Sunday morning. And so I was sleepless. And around 11 o'clock on Saturday evening, I got up to go outside for a brief look at the night sky, but it was cloudy and misty. I saw a figure walking down the street, great coat, large brimmed hat, and a walking stick. And I watched that figure walk into the halo of a street light and then back into the dark. Working on this final lecture, that image of Dr. Kirk on his way to his library, one more night at his desk, working to redeem the times, redeem the higher moral vision. So when working then on Dr. Kirk's Eliot and His Age, published in 1971, a discussion then with the students one time on the moral imagination and the diabolical imagination. They found Dirty Bed, or at least they pretended to found her. Would I explain more? I said the difference is whether the images inside the imagination are healthy or unhealthy. So I used then a phrase to describe, I said, the inner strength that a person must have to do the right thing in very difficult situations and whether the rising divorce rate, for example, might be the result of what I called moral fiber. It's a standard of decency, I opined, and then I added to all that the term moral fabric, which, if properly worn by a culture, holds that culture together. If I had been more aware at that moment, I would be able to see that they were plotting. So when I came into my office then the following Monday by the door <sighs> were six boxes of cereal, repackaged, <laughs> claiming to offer 100% daily nutritional needs of moral fiber <laughs> and no diabolical additives. So to class then that same morning to find those rascals seated around the seminar table cereal bowls and milk, as they proclaimed such was the best fiber, moral fiber they had ever eaten, and how it strengthened their moral imaginations. I did notice that they were also in their pajamas, <laughs> and they claimed that the jammies were made from the very, very best moral fabric. Somehow they all went on and became a success in life, including one who is by right now the Chief Justice of the West Virginia Supreme Court. So more on that imagination in a bit, but my sense is that most persons are familiar with Cats, a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which debuted in 1981 with that lovely, lovely song, Memory, sung by Grisabella, or Elaine Page for that matter, but actually a cat a one-time glamour cat fallen on hard times. Few know, though, that that musical is based upon T.S. Eliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, which Eliot published in 1939 based upon a series of letters written to his godchildren and the children of intimate friends. There's Grisabella, and she does that wonderful, wonderful song, Memory. In 1988, Washington University in St. Louis was holding a conference then honoring the centennial of T.S. Eliot's birth. So the conference was at the university because T.S. Eliot was born in St. Louis and to a fairly wealthy family. His father owned a brick-making brick factory and his grandfather, a Unitarian minister, 
was influential in founding the university, which was also called at that time Elliott Seminary. Now, the point being here is that Elliott was born into a religious family with New England ties, but theologically with the cold hand of Unitarianism, which is a form of liberalism, rejecting original sin, predestination, the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, albeit he, Christ, is a mere moral exemplar and hardly part of something as mysterious as the Trinity. This is Enlightenment modern stuff. So it gives one shivers to think about it. All that mystery gone. So the conference now is designed to be small and based upon his friendship with Eliot. Dr. Kirk was supposed to be in attendance to speak, but he could not. Thus came the phone call. Would I take his place? So it was a congenial gathering then in St. Louis. It was spring. On the program was the performance of Eliot's moral imagination verse drama, Murder in the Cathedral, which was staged in the university's Graham Chapel, which is, by the way, a lovely, lovely place. Now, in 1935 and following, Eliot then was composing a whole series of verse dramas, which includes now the magisterial Murder in the Cathedral, which is a metaleptic story of the assassination of Archbishop Thomas Becket in Canterbury Cathedral during the time of Henry II in 1170. If you've read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, you know that those characters are making a pilgrimage to where Becket was assassinated. So the point now is that Henry represents the increasing rise of temporal power, offering riches and fame to those who will serve the king, which would then be an advantage because the king then would have the blessing and the control of the church, but it would be the temporal mystique superseding the eternal mystique. So Becket then represents a different kind of power, the Christian eternal mystique. In addition to that, it's to protect the poor and also then to hold the keys to heaven and hell. Because Becket refuses to serve the king, Henry resolves to, quote, rid himself of this priest. He sends four knights to murder Becket in his cathedral. They do so. And while Becket lies dying, soaking in his martyr's blood, the chorus made up of the poor intones, clear the air, clean the sky, the land is foul, the water is foul, our breasts and ourselves are defiled with blood. This turns out not to be in 1935, and is also the exact same year in which Hitler's henchmen passed the Nuremberg race laws, which deprived German Jews of the rights of citizens which oddly then led to a confusion as to what it meant to be a Jew. So the law settled then on varying degrees with a full Jew being someone with three Jewish grandparents. Second, third degree Jews, first, excuse me, first degree Jew, then two grandparents, and a second degree Jew, one grandparent. It was all done because of the parsing again in the law, which said the law is being passed for the protection of the genetic health of the German people, for the protection of German blood and German honor. Now there's much more to that year in 1935, suggesting again the land had become foul, the air needed to be cleaned, but as for Beckett. After murdering Beckett, the knights then turn and address the audience, but they do so in the language of very modern idiomatic prose, verging into Cockney even. 
So what's their argument? Well, they say, they understand that their actions will be seen as murder, but it was expedient and necessary and justified, lest the power of the church undermine the stability of the state. They were too just following orders. Now at a later time, at a later time, when on trial in Israel in 1961, Adolf Eichmann, one of the authors of The Final Solution, argued exactly the same thing. He was not responsible for the final solution since he was only following orders. So again now, 200 or so academics have meandered down to this chapel when a thunderstorm broke out, which led to most sitting in that chapel wet and fragrant as damp dogs. Comes a moment in which there's this crackling, booming, shaking boost of thunder outside from the storm that's now raging. The chapel doors flew open and in march, not four knights, but four Nazi SS troopers, goose-stepping their way to the front of the church. And I don't think it could have been planned any better. The SS troopers then delivered their speeches, but one night more important in rank than others did so in guttural German. I think it left the audience morally gasping, and it was pretty easy to see that the point was being made. Let me mention one more verse drama by Eliot, who is attempting to redeem the times and rescue order from disorder, his moral imagination opposed to, let's say, disabled imaginations. So it's called The Cocktail Party, which in the chitter-chatter and light satire reveals the shallow relations of modern characters, marriages and gossip and hollow men and women, their headpieces filled with straw except for one character in the play, Celia, whose insights are intriguing because when she observes at the cocktail party that they make noises and they think that they are talking to each other, they make faces, and think they understand each other. She resolves to be different, but only after suggesting that they all need someone greater than the greatest doctor to cure their illness. Celia, which with its Latin origin means heavenly. So she in the play is the only spiritually progressing character who at one moment says, it's not the feeling of anything I've ever done, which I might get away from, or of anything in me I could get rid of, but of emptiness, a failure towards someone or something outside of myself. And I feel I must atone. Is that the word? Well, it is the word. And she enters into Christian formation, which leads to mission work and also to a martyr's death. Of her death, another character at another cocktail party notes, she must have been crucified very near an anthill, to which another cocktail party notes then, to which another cocktail toting guest remarks, and just for a handful of plague-stricken natives who would have died anyway. So one spiritually progressing character, which doesn't seem like much, but perhaps the blood of one more martyr is what is needed to redeem the times, redeem the times. So astride his age, then. 
My grandmother, Anna, had seven brothers, five of whom mustered into the American army and followed General Pershing to Europe and the World War, number one. Great Uncle Carl once showed me his gas mask, about which I was curious. Artillery shells would be loaded with mustard gas, and they would then spread like a noxious yellow fog and settle into the trenches. Great uncle was blind in one eye and had a nagging wet cough. Two of the five brothers did not return home to the farm and family life. Now, it's hard to imagine what the countryside looked like, but that's a trench. There were the gas masks, and there were actually over 400 miles of trenches from the Atlantic coast all the way across France. So his stride is aged then. And from his point of observation following World War I, the consequence was a weakened and disordered society, which he compared to a wasteland, much like the shattered land, again, of World War I trench warfare. His first truly, truly successful work before the 1930s, closet dramas, was a poem titled The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. This is on your... You've got this, don't you? <laughs> it's in her kitchen. That's how they start the day. Kids. Anyway, it was published in 1915, and it's what we know to be a dramatic monologue, which means the poem portrays the intimate thoughts of this character, who is invented, but he's very modern, this J. Alfred Prufrock. The important thing here is Prufrock is not Eliot. It's best to imagine that the poet is sort of holding up a mirror and he copies in poetic language what's reflected in that mirror. And he does that without explanation, which means the explanation is left up to us. This is how it reads. I have to do this in the most boring voice I can because that's it. But <clears throat> Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels. So what you see in the poem is a character who is bored, but to feel alive, he's off to a one-night cheap hotel. And I'm going to let you use your imagination on that. But it's lurid, and it's amplified by yellow fog and yellow smoke creeping along the streets, and he's also very, very self-conscious. He wonders if he enters a room and people turn to look at him. Will they think that his hair is growing thin? His legs and his arms are growing thin with age? So extremely self-conscious, in other words, of his age, his presence. In fact, he also thinks about the women who are coming and going in the room that he's entered, and that he has, quote, known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, and in the lamplight, downed with light brown hair. Exclamation mark. Use your imagination. Prufrock saying that he has known them all, but he hasn't, except in his disabled imagination. So what's his role in life if it's a dramatic production? He would be a character ridiculous, probably at times the fool, except in his disabled imagination. 
but it's pretty darned easy to see that he's got some issues. From his thoughts, we learn that he is a misogynist, sexualizing all of the women around him while being in tune with the vogue of the culture, which we gather from the fact that in a very sophisticated way, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. Now, he's used Michelangelo only to get a good rhyme in here, but it could be the women come and go talking about Jean-Paul Sartre. So it's easy to see that none of the characters care for the inner order of the soul, albeit they are haunted then by time. But how to interpret? You could bring to bear almost everything we know about modern philosophical existentialism and Freudianism, and you would come away with an inner interpretation that would suffice. He has an existence, but his inner essence, his subjective personality, is surely very, very unhealthy. So we could say then that Prufrock's imagination is immoral, but generally we should be concerned with an argument that Prufrock is a character so totally closed in upon himself and whose conscious behavior is so shut off, he's living in a sort of cul-de-sac of silence. When we read the poem, we catch a glimpse, a glance of a man who is cut off from the community of souls, severed from the larger sources of wisdom. The one thing he possesses is dread, a sickness unto death even if his outer image to the world around is that of a sophisticate. To use an existential word, he's alienated, suffering from the French flu. And it's acute, this dilemma. The shabby establishments of the modern world matching the shabby establishments of the modern mind made more acute by what Eliot came to call the diabolic imagination, which needed to be refuted by the moral imagination So, modern spiritual paralysis, disillusionment and sterility of fragmented modern man, with the vision of desolation and spiritual drought, and again, the plight of post-World War I generation, whom Gertrude Stein again called the lost generation. One of the avowed spokespersons for this generation was one D.H. Lawrence, and he then is a purveyor of the diabolical imagination and dubbed by T.S. Eliot as a worshiper of strange gods. Lawrence, as a case in point, was a British novelist whose reputation at one time was that of a pornographer, although one might wish to modify that with the adjective soft, and with modestly explicit novels like Lady Chatterley's Lover, which when published was something of a public event and later became a test case for the 1959 Obscene Publication Act. He was also something of a painter, and in 1929, he hosted an exhibition with some 13,000 people attending, most of them to gawk. One painting that excited a good deal of attention was titled, Fight with an Amazon, which presents now in vivid, grotesque color. This, by the way, is a large painting. Vivid, grotesque color, a hideous, bearded man holding a fair-haired woman in a lascivious grip, while down around on the bottom are wolves with dripping jaws looking on expectantly. I think it's also called sophicized, you know, just get it up over the sofa. (laughs) He did own something of a modest philosophy, which might be summed up as each man should live spontaneously for himself, 
or by following what he called blood instinct. In another novel, Women in Love, which follows the affairs of the Brangwen sisters, one of whom pursues a destructive relationship with a jaded, alienated, modern intellectual, Rupert Birkin, whose opinions in the novel are usually understood to be those of Lawrence himself. Explicit sexual matter caused early controversy, led one critic to know he knew dirt when he smelled it, and here is dirt in heaps, festering, putrid heaps, all of which smells to high heaven. But it's a curious modern notion, and Lawrence's argument seems to be that what he called his religious instinct was that a belief in the blood is wiser than the intellect. He meant instinct, life force, and he decried Christianity, which he thought suppressed people's instincts. So if you think about this for a moment then, it has consequences. You would be correct if you knew that this was incorporated by the German Nazi propagandists, who argued that the German people were bound by an instinctual blood connection rather than something more loose like friendship, but also submissive to a natural leader such as Hitler, and a figure with whom the History Channel these days remains tremendously fascinated, sort of unregenerate personality, and such has been the influence of the modern heretic. So this is T.S. Eliot's world now between the two world wars, and so what's to be done? The antidote is the moral imagination, which for Eliot would be poetry and prose that would refute heresy, which he defined as a fanatical belief in one isolated truth, as opposed to orthodoxy, acceptance of what mankind has learned from revelation. So the moral imagination then distinguishes civilized behavior from savagery, and we find ideas then drawn from centuries of human experience, different from what is current or fashionable, and by centuries of experience and tradition the great books and the great conversation and the fact that we are dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. And we find that phrase, the moral imagination, originating with Sir Edmund Burke, by which he meant now the power of ethical perception, which strides beyond the barriers of private experience. The moral imagination thus aspires to apprehend right order in the soul and order in the commonwealth. So the larger point now is that Eliot was never ever an atheist or an agnostic, but he had slipped away from orthodoxy and was searching a way back, something upon which to rest his heart. And after that long poem titled The Wasteland, Eliot wrote very, very little during the 1920s decade until the appearance then of a poem titled Ash Wednesday in 1929, which in its dramatic monologue it's an illustration of what it means to think like a Christian, but it's also thinking translated into liturgical language, the better to penetrate to the heart and soul of Christian mysteries. So to read the poem now is to understand that the thoughts of the character in the poem are the thoughts of someone about to receive ashes, which are equivalent to dust. A solemn reminder, in other words, of human mortality and the need for reconciliation with God. This is how it goes. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Lord, I am not worthy. 
Lord, I'm not worthy, but speak the word only. Where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Blessed Sister, Holy Mother, Spirit of the Fountain, Spirit of the Garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Even among these rocks, our peace is in his will. And even among these rocks, sister, mother, and spirit of the river, spirit of the sea, suffer me not to be separated and let my cry come unto thee. And there are a couple of other liturgical performances following, including one remarkable, The Journey of the Magi, and then a lovely loved one told a song for Simeon, just to mention two. So the question then is, how did this come about? How did Eliot then move from the earlier love song with the tortured psyche of the prototypical modern character, neurotic and emotionally stilted, to the liturgical, if not sacramental, Ash Wednesday? We know, we know that Eliot had immense reading. And we know that his reading took him back in time into the Church of England history and back to the 1600s and to an Anglican priest, Lancelot Andrews. And reading his extraordinary, lucid, and intellectually sound sermons, Eliot then became intellectually convinced that Christianity was the superlative religion in history because of two theological principles, the Incarnation and the Resurrection. Andrews writes, for example, that with the Incarnation, Christ dwells in us, we in him, and by doing so, we receive his spirit, which makes us partakers of the divine nature and lets us then seal our duty with him. And we know. Eliot was also deeply steeped in St. John of the Cross, 16th century, whose remarkable The Dark Night of the Soul narrates the mystical process of the transformation of the soul from its old to its new self, through a spiritual participatory union with God. That might not seem like much, but what occurred with Eliot was first his intellectual conversion to Christianity, which led him to seal his duty with Christianity. The conversion, however, was not complete, but we know that he owned a passionate craving for God, which would answer the disorder, the futility, the meaninglessness of modernism, and the mystery of life and suffering. So we arrive here. And there's a grand, grand phrase to be used here, and one with which Eliot was very familiar. And it comes from Blessed John Henry Newman and is called Illative Sense. We find it in Newman's essay in aid of grammar of assent. According to Newman, to have a natural theology is to know by reason that God exists. But that carries us only so far. But over time, one might, if we're observant, acquire little bits and pieces and fragments of experience tiny, tiny indications that when a moment in time occurs, a certitude occurs that opens the whole of our being to the transcendent, to a much more complete openness to God, that Newman said is therefore then a preamble to deep faith and by which probabilities converge into certainty. So the story is, Eliot never ever ever wrote about it, but the story is an intellectual convert then 
to the deep, deep traditions that he found in the Church of England. He was visiting the small village of Little Gidding, which is in the east part of England. There's a little bitty church there, St. John's. And the story is that while visiting that church all by himself and alone, he experienced only what can be referred to as his second conversion and a peace that brought satisfaction to the whole of his being, removed all doubt, brought satisfaction, and it's a little bit like what Simone Wilde said, describing her own such experience, Christ came down and took hold of me. And the consequence then is that Eliot, like other Christian humanists, C.S. Lewis, Jacques Maritain, became then an apologist and a defender of Christianity. And this, by the way, now, 1930s on into the 1940s, the twilight years with an enormous amount of frightfulness going on, the imminent ruin of Europe once again. Late in 1939, Eliot began a series of BBC radio broadcasts, a broadcast on the idea of a Christian society, and then even to the point in which London was being firebombed, and along with that firebombing, those majestic churches brought into being by the architect Christopher Wren, those churches being reduced now to ashes. So remember that now from history, how the tide and language of ideology was gaining popularity. Neville Chamberlain made his appeasement pact with Hitler, which meant the language of braggart nationalism would soon tear apart the unity of European culture. Eliot's subject matter now in those BBC radio broadcasts was not dogmatic, neither was it denominational. His defense and argument for a Christian society and culture was an answer to the question addressed again in what does it mean to think like a Christian? And what should be the language that demonstrates Christian thinking? So we know now that Eliot during World War II had a flat and when the firebombing was coming across, he would go to the roof of the building and he was a fire warden. And he would watch the bombers appearing over London night after night. We know that he watched the flames bursting and flaring such that one might very well have thought civilization was once more collapsing. He rather thought, however, that the flames could be understood as purifying and that the idea of a Christian society might emerge. And why not? Why not make deep connections to a traditional purgatorial vision, which when applied to ideology, burns and purges and cleanses, redeeming the time by appealing to the conscience? There's absolutely no romantic egoism at work here, but it is Augustinian, he who once argued in the City of God, part 1-8, that the same fire that causes gold to glow briefly with the violence of affliction also proves purges and clarifies the gold. Now, the consequence was the majestic, majestic long poem, The Four Quartets, which is when I taught Eliot all the time, I'd do the wasteland and I would say, now we'll read The Four Quartets and you'll see he's repudiating what he did in the, in the prior poem. It's a long poem, which even in its length, is a poem of Christian thinking, interlinked with Christian meditations throughout, and likely intended again to redeem the times. Here are some lines from the second of the quartets, titled East Coker, and the reason becoming obvious here when I conclude in a few. In my end is my beginning, in succession, 
Hours rise and fall, crumble are extended. There is, it seems to us, at best, only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience, which, by the way, is a backhanded slap at the Enlightenment. The knowledge imposes a pattern and falsifies. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. You must go by a way, which is the way of ignorance, in order to possess what you do not possess. You must go by way of dispossession. Home is where one starts from. Love is most near itself, where here and now cease to matter. We must be still and moving into another intensity for a deeper union, a deeper communion. Through the dark, cold, and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters. In my end is my beginning. Here are some lines from the fourth and concluding quartet, interestingly titled Little Giddy, the place of Eliot's profound spiritual conversion. You were not here to verify. Instruct yourself. Inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel, where prayer has long been valid. And prayer is more than an order of words. The conscious occupation of the praying mind or the sound of the voice praying and what the dead had no speech for when living. They tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. These are the lines, by the way, you might recall if you see when I had <coughs> Dr. Kirk's tombstone up at the first time we met. This is where it comes from. The language of the dead is tended with fire beyond the language of the living. Here the intersection of the timeless moments. Since our concern was speech, and speech impelled us to purify the language of the tribe, the dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. Quick now, here now, always, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are infolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. I said to my soul, be still, and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be light, and the stillness the dancing. And the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought and action. The hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood is incarnation. In my end is my beginning. So what was going on now in Eliot's various works during the years was a shift into an attempt at social regeneration, sacramentalizing the world, but informed by Christian thought, which suggests again that during his time, Eliot had become a Christian apologist. London and the world would have to be rebuilt, but not just willy-nilly, but with the proper idea of a culture. Why not rebuild then around the idea of a Christian culture, a Christian society? 
Now, for us these days, it's difficult, if not impossible, to believe that such a thing as a few verse dramas or long poems or collections of essays in smallish books could even make it possible to believe in Christian insights while living within the precincts of modernism's ideologies. And all around Eliot were modern ideological materialists declaring that Christianity had become a mere fable in which no one could ever believe honestly. So a lot of criticism came to Eliot, arguing that he had effected really a sham religion when he could have been in better service by identifying and helping the proletarians. So Eliot's response came when he argued that merely condemning fascism and communism, we might consider also that we live in a mass civilization filled with many, many, many wrong ambitions and desires. But if, and that's a very big if, if our culture renounces complete obedience to God, it will not become not better, but possibly, possibly worse. So it then depends upon what constitutes a society and a culture. But we do know that a neutral society cannot long endure, and a pagan society should rightly be abominated by the upholders of the permanent things. And so Eliot argued that if a Christian society has decayed in the 20th century, especially between the two wars, a culture of negation looms before us. So again, he made radio broadcasts during the war, and he told the radio audience that his point of departure was under suspicion, but that he also was not aiming at any kind of originality, nor was he aiming at a down-by-the-river religious revival, which he believed was a separation of religious feeling from religious thinking. He also pointed out that if we consider tradition and history, one has to remark that mankind has always lived within spiritual institutions side by side with political institutions. But as time has gone by, trust has been placed in either one or the other. But what has always been best is the eternal mystique preceding the temporal mystique. So his continuing worry was that at the heart of all of the difficulties occurring during World War II, the history after the war would reflect societies renouncing obedience to God, and which he feared then would lead to circumstances worse than those presently being experienced. He was worried about divisiveness and factions. He also made that the bold claim that Christianity claimed no particular form of government other than natural law and natural liberty, which argues that the source for temporal order is the eternal order of religious creed. So the hope then, the antidote for this increasingly secular society would be for countries, England in particular, to rediscover their much needed spiritual roots. But if not, organized Christianity might become little more than a tolerated minority. And so he adds, by the way, that he's not just picturing a society of saints. He's concerned with very ordinary men and women whose Christianity is communal first and individual second, which he thinks also is too often feigned. So he's not so much concerned with denominations in their separated aspects as he has a sort of ecumenical combination of directed religious thought, which he then proceeds to a criticism of political and economic systems. So equally to the point was Eliot's fear 
that Christianity would become what C.S. Lewis called mere, which he said would make Christianity into nothing more, nothing less than a sentiment alone. He too argued then that this was the time of the demagogues, to whom it was argued that you have to pay respects. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini. These were regimes which do not have God, who is, by the way, a jealous God. So said Eliot then, voicing his worries in this BBC radio broadcasts. He had set his face toward a cultural remedy for the modern dilemma. That would be the recovery of a Christian community, but best expressed by, again, Christian thinking in those poems, 1930s verse dramas, which should have bearing on us even to this very day. How else can we purge the language of the tribe unless we exercise the purifying language of atonement? Eliot lived on into the 1960s <clears throat> before going to be with God in January 1965. The memorial service was, according to his wishes, very small and very private. His ashes were interred at a small church the church, at Saint, uh, <coughs> the church of St. Michael at East Coker Village, which is in the province of Canterbury. It's interesting because it's the exact same village and church from which his ancestors departed for America in the 17th century, and from which we also draw the title of the last, the fourth of the quartets. A larger memorial service eventually, this is the plaque that you would find with his wife who lived on into 2012, Valerie, was his second wife. And it's an interesting story. They married relatively young and she was bipolar. And it deepened and deepened and deepened. And Elliot stuck it out, stuck it out, stuck it out until it became impossible. And they separated. It wasn't long after that that she passed away. Interesting thing then about Valerie is that she was his secretary all this time also. If you look at pictures of Eliot before his marriage to Valerie, he's never smiling. After he's married to Valerie, he's got a big grin on his face every time you see him. So now this is the Eliot's memorial marker in the East Coker Church. That's it. Some people think that he is at Westminster. There's a plaque there, but he's not where the plaque is. He's down here. Later on then, a larger memorial service was held in June 1965 at the Globe Theatre in London, which was more of an homage paid by such luminaries as Peter O'Toole, Laurence Olivier. These are the people who trod this sort of Shakespearean stage. Judy Dench was there. Vanessa Redgrave was there. Anthony Hopkins was there. So it was not a commentary or an interpretation or something morbid and melancholy. They just were reading Eliot and performing Eliot. Series of dramatic readings of Eliot's corpus of writing by those deeply appreciative stage actors with the wonderful voices. It went on for some time and then came an intermission and comes the final part two of the presentation which went on. And that seemed as if there was a conclusion going on because the stage darkened but then it became illuminated by a single circle of light. And another character walked into that circle of light and began to read from Old Possum's book of Practical Cats. And it's Gus, the theater cat from Old Possum's book. And as we know from Gus now, Gus is the most secretive and mysterious of all of the characters in the entirety of all those cats. 
and whom we will never completely know or never completely understand. And so the character then who was reading these lines read the following, which comes from Augusta Theater Cap. I had a voice that would soften the hardest of hearts, whether I took the lead or in character parts. But my greatest creation, as history will tell, was fire for fiddle, the fiend of the fell. But there's nothing so equal from what I hear tell, that moment of mystery, when I made history as fire for fiddle, the fiend of the fell. So in the musical now, elderly Gus, now Gus the Cat, takes this bow, but is startled by the huge amount of audience applause. And this is the man who <laughs> ended the entire <laughs> memorial service. <laughs> and now, who is it? <laughs> You're showing your age. <laughs> You've never heard of the Marx Brothers? That's Groucho. As it is, Elliot had an extraordinary sense of humor, loved the Marx Brothers movies, and never ever missed a Charlie Chaplin movie either. Slide 22. Men cannot improve a society by setting fire to it. They must seek out its old virtues and bring them back into light. And that's again Russell Amos Kirk, my friend. That's it, folks. I quit.